Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. All right, welcome everyone. I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy. And today we're going to talk about something that's a little interesting. It's tool selection or product selection. And, and here's why. Every single CISO that I know has to pick a cyber tool at one point in time. And sometimes you get the timing. Sometimes the timing is forced on you. So imagine, hey, it's end of the year and there's user lose money. And somebody says, hey, got any good ideas? Well, if you do and you have the money, now you can get that magic tool. Or maybe it's the end of the year and it's contract negotiation. And that one tool that you love so much has suddenly decided to triple their prices. Uh-oh, what do you do now? So we're going to talk about a couple different ways where you can evaluate tools based on performance, features, and pricing, and a lot of different insights to help you be the CISO that the organization needs to get the right cyber tools in place. Good point, Ross. I think that I remember when I had a CISO job and I was getting introduced to some of the ropes there, that I was advised by somebody that said, your job as a CISO is to move the organization from vendors that suck to vendors that suck less. With uh, all apologies to vendors aside, the point was, he said, you will always find something suboptimal with just about anything. And as a result, what you're going to try to do is you try to improve on that, either improve in terms of cost, uh, effectiveness, efficiency, return on investment, and things such as that. And so now, if we are not on top of our game, if we just simply blithely sign software renewal, 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 it doesn't cause us to reevaluate what we're doing. Much like we have with our policies, where policies should be reevaluated from time to time to see if they're still current, our tool sets need to be evaluated from time to time to see if they're still optimal. There may have been a new vendor who came up in the recent time with something really cool, or there may not be that requirement anymore. And so this will help you going through that process to make an educated business decision so that you can justify your choice. And if you have to argue for funding from senior management, you'll have a much better business case. Exactly. Great. And, and I just want to start off with a story that I heard that I thought was really interesting. There were two individuals who were in a log cutting exercise. And they both had a big log that they had to chop down with an axe. And so they both go and they start just hacking at this thing. And about 10 minutes later, one guy takes a break and the other guy just he keeps hacking at it. Right. And so after about five, 10 minutes, then the second guy comes back and now they're both hacking at the, at the log with the axe and it continues. And then uh, about 15 minutes later, the guy who took the break again gets another break. And so then he gets, after about 10 minutes, he comes back and, and goes back and they both start hacking. So after this kind of repeats about three, four times, finally, they see that the, the, the second person who took all the breaks 
this log cut faster than the first individual. And you just got to imagine the frustration for the first person. He's like, dude, you, you lazy man. I, I've been over here hacking at this log all this time. And you got breaks and you finished before me. That, that can't be. What happened? And, and he says, well, how'd you do it? And he says, well, you might've thought I was just resting and sitting on my laurels, but I was sharpening my ax during those breaks. Right. And so how do we sharpen our tools and make sure we refine it? Are we using the best tools right to, to this point? And when we start to think about it, there's a couple of different ways we can solve this problem. The first way is known as market research. And there's uh, two big vendors in this space, Gartner, who does magic quadrants, and Forrester, who has something called the wave. And these allow a visualization just quickly where you can see who are the biggest vendors in the space. Gmark, can you talk a little bit about the, the magic quadrant and what you would see in one of those? Certainly. Well, Gartner is an interesting organization, and they consider themselves, among other things, to be able to pri- provide things such as thought leadership in the marketplace. And one of their marketing tools, I guess, which has really had a significant influence in the industry is what they call the magic quadrant. Now, magic quadrant is a two by two grid, which has as the horizontal axis, completeness of vision, and as the vertical axis, ability to execute. And so the magic quadrant refers to organizations that they believe have both a complete vision and an ability to execute. Companies submit so that they could go ahead, and I don't really know the dynamics or the finances of Gartner. There's an awful lot of people who suggest that you pay to play, that if you want to be in the magic quadrant, you just pay Gartner more money. And I don't believe that's true. And I certainly we could, we could run this to ground, but what's important is this, is that if you want to go and you go to Gartner.com or look up Gartner Magic Quadrant, you'll find out that they have dozens of different market segments in which they have provided a analysis of different vendors and scored them, not only just a score on a dot on a map, but a paragraph or two that explains it. So you say, hey, this is pretty cool. I need to go ahead and get a web app firewall or something else. Let me download the Gartner Magic Quadrant report from Gartner. And if you do so, you will find out that Magic Quadrant reports have a retail price of $1,995 US. Seriously. And let's say, are you kidding me? I don't want to spend $2,000 to read the report. So you Google it and you find out that there's a half a dozen places you can get it for free. What's going on here? And so what Gartner does is that they will go ahead and allow vendors to submit for analysis. And for those that Gartner independently determines have what they consider a complete vision and a significant ability to execute, those companies are scored to be in the upper right-hand corner, the magic quadrant, at which point Gartner would then go back to them. And again, this is my conjecture, but I think it's pretty reasonable to say, hey, you know what? This would be great for marketing and advertising. Wouldn't you like the world to know that you are one of the top companies in your niche? So here's how it's going to work. Instead of them having to pay $2,000 per copy, we will allow you to buy bulk reproduction rights for X dollars. And so as a result, you can feature it on your website, you can feature it in your marketing, and in fact, offer it up to people in exchange for their name, their email address, and their contact data. And so that's almost always the way you'll get your magic quadrant information. Now, a quick thought about that. Does that mean that the only companies you want to do business with are going to be high into the right? No. 
because you may not need a, an ability to execute on the order of a massive scale. You may not need all the complexities. What they call a niche player, the bottom left-hand corner, may be absolutely more than sufficient for your requirements. And because they're probably smaller companies, they might be more willing to negotiate some changes in their contracts. That's a really good point, because if you think about it, not everyone is a top 10 bank or Fortune 100 company. And when you're in those environments where you have 100,000 plus machines and, and, and workers, you know, working with a small startup company who's never had to manage that scale is really hard. But you're, you probably need a very thought out enterprise solution. And that's where the ability to execute is really important. Now that's going to come with a huge cost, right? So being able to choose the right quadrant is really important. And it, it's interesting because you'll see a lot of people flag as being visionaries. And then you got to say, well, how well can they execute? I don't see it as high. And, and what I've personally found is I think the magic quadrant is really good at finding vendors. I've always struggled with where they're placed in the quadrant. So use this as a way to identify a pool of companies that you want to see sales pitches from and then make your own personal choices based on what you're looking for in your company. Good point, Ross. I remember about five years ago, I was looking at uh, MDM, Mobile Device Management, and I pulled down the Gartner report and literally there were 100 companies. They had 100 different firms that they had taken a look at. And my prediction was in several years, you're going to be down to about a dozen. Some of them are going to merge. Some will be acquired, some will go out of business. Now, when you're doing competitive analysis and looking to make product selections, it's useful to look at more than one vendor. What might look like a good deal right out of the chute, if you go ahead and compare with two or three other offerings, you might realize, wow, that would have been a bad idea. And so as a result, as you had said, it's a great way to, if you will, create an initial shortlist. And... By going ahead and coughing up your contact data to one of the companies who's offering you a free copy, or if you have a subscription to Gartner, or if you've got a lot of money in your budget, send Gartner 2000 bucks. They're not going to complain. You can then go ahead and take a look at those brief reviews and begin to approach the idea of how do we go ahead and select our companies that we wish to compete, examine in more detail, and ultimately select from. Yeah, and you're going to go down and, and find some vendors that are good and, and find some vendors that are more expensive than others, right? So maybe this solution is slightly better, but if it's three times the price, that's, that's maybe a hard pill to swallow when you want to use some of that other budget in your cyber area to, to spend on other tools instead of this just one focus. Or conversely, if you've selected a solution that is relatively expensive, and some budget counter in your organization challenges you. Well, wait a minute. There's another company out there that's a whole lot cheaper. Why don't you use that? You'll be able to have the ammunition to say, hey, take a look. The cheaper company doesn't deliver the same value. And we need this value because it is delivering pretty much what it is we have to have. 
And, and that's a great point because we shouldn't always just go with low cost, right? There is a huge difference between free antivirus and paid for antivirus, one would, one would see, right? So as we start to look through the Gartner Magic Quadrant or look at the Forrester Wave, which puts people into challengers, contenders, strong performers, and leaders, we can use this to build the shortlist as G. Marks stated. Yeah, now you mentioned Forrester Wave, and Forrester is a company that is similar to Gartner and what they're able to provide is insights into the market. They also do, as they say, analysis, thought leadership and things such as that. And it's interesting, I guess, if you asked Gartner about companies that do this type of work, Gartner would put themselves in the magic quadrant and probably would put Forrester somewhere else because they're a competitor, but they tend not to look at their own. So when you consider then the adjectives or the nouns, I guess, that are used, the concept of a niche player, a visionary, a challenger, and a leader for Gartner, or a challenger, a contender, a strong performer, and a leader for Forrester. In both cases, I guess you get leader, but instead of having a two-by-two grid, the Forrester wave has concentric portions of a circle. It's like a quarter of the bottom left corner of a target, where you see uh, kind of the bullseye in the upper right corner, and then it moves farther and farther away from current offering strength and strategy strength. So here, instead of saying completeness of vision, ability to execute, Forrester says, how strong is your strategy? How strong is your current offering? Again, a way to determine four different quadrants or four different waves of being able to break out vendors to provide you as some initial thoughts of what do we need to look at? If I'm a CISO for a large uh, federal, if I'm the CIO for the Department of Defense, for example, I'm probably not going to be looking at niche players. However, if I'm an SMB or the like, those niche players may in fact be ideally suited for what I want in terms of uh, price and willingness to negotiate, as well as there may be features that they are more than sufficient for my environment. And just one other piece, I know Gartner is well known and, and Forrester not as much, but Fortner ha, uh, Forrester has one piece that they include on their chart, which is a market presence, and it shows how popular this is. Mm -hmm. That's another really good thing to look at when you're selecting vendors, because the more widely adopted it is, the better places that you can find help support tickets, and other things to help your engineers really being able to learn and up on that tool. That's a great point because it's, it's the size of that dot on the, the Forrester wave. So a little dink suggests that it's a small business and a big blotch suggests that they're a lot bigger and able to support more. Now, as we start to shift and look at a different way to look at companies besides market research, a second way we often see is a comparison site or tool. And there's hundreds of these sites that are up. And, and I'll just give a couple examples of AV comparatives or Fire Compass. And what it is, is it's a site where you can go in and compare two V two vendors side by side, and it'll, and it'll have a, a variety of decisioning criteria, right? So think about if you're going to compare antivirus, you may say, does it work on Windows and does it work on Linux? Does it have the ability to scan ransomware and does it have the ability to scan browser protections? And in, in, 
in those list of fields that are going through, you have a little checkbox for each of the companies, and then ultimately you get to make your decisions based off of that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you think about it, what happens now is that for, let's take the AB comparatives, we'll look at a number of vendors, we'll provide updates from time to time and run them against a set of uh, targets, if you will, to say, hey, guess what? This organization blocked all the bad stuff or some dependent upon the user to identify it or a, a full compromise came through. And if you go through their, their websites, you can look at latest tests and test results and their test methods and their charts. And, and there's some great stuff there. And depending upon what you're looking for, of course, you might determine that, hey, this looks pretty good. Now, I'm looking right now at a more recent um, real-world protection test for antivirus. And if you try to look at the 0 to 100, um, we're finding out that everything's just blocked up there. And if you go all the way up to the top, we're now at the point where the worst organization of these is at 98%. And the best one, I guess, tops out at about 100. There's a couple that do there. So here's the question. Is it really statistically significant when you're down to that margin in a particular product set that suggests that, hey, I'm going to pick brand A over brand B? Well, if you're looking at a free tool or a relatively low cost tool and in an arm's length test, it scores as well as or better than a full price tool, you might increase your confidence about making that selection for your enterprise. Conversely, if you find that you have inherited the use of a particular tool and its support has been slipping over time, the vendor is no longer maintaining it, that might be an indication that you should consider updating or changing. So were you to use an antivirus tool in your enterprise on a regular basis, this might be something that you put on your calendar every six months or every year, maybe a month or two before renewal. See if your product's holding up. The danger, of course, with antivirus evaluations is what? It's how good is the product at that minute on that day? It's a very, very dynamically shifting environment. The other thing also is it depends, just to get into a little bit of a technical uh, detail here, on the homogeneity of your enterprise. So the enterprise that I secure is all Windows 10 professional. I've got no Windows 7 left, don't have any uh, Macs, etc. In a situation like that, where I have a monolithic structure, something like a Windows Defender and the anti-ransomware tools that are built into Windows 10 Professional are maybe sufficient enough to say, I don't need a third-party antivirus. So consider heresy in some cases. You might look at a situation and say, I think I can justify reallocating these funds based upon the native performance of this particular operating system tool. You don't often get that with too many things, but we might also find that what was an absolute necessity two, three, four, five years ago, maybe less of a necessity as the base vendor, in this case, we're talking about Microsoft, may have improved their capabilities to the point where it gives you a sufficient and adequate protection to reduce your risk. And one vendor that we're seeing 
come up in the space being more and more interesting is MITRE. They actually came out with something called the MITRE Ingenuity uh, or Attack Evaluations, where they're looking at a couple of AV vendors and seeing how they map against nation state actors. And, and that's a really cool one. We'll put a link to that in, in the notes for the show. But when you look through this, the big thing I hope you take out of it, and this is really powerful for me, is what are the features that you're asking for or you didn't ask for? And in using this to help influence, you know, as you see all the people who've done this before and you're reading the comments in these uh, comparisons, somebody will say, yeah, but it didn't really have this one feature in the checklist, which we wanted to know. So read through the, the comments. And what this allows you to do is create something called Moscow Prioritization. And if you've never heard of Moscow, it's an acronym, and it means must have, should have, could have, or will not have. And, and think about this for your organization. When I say we need a web application firewall, that means one thing to me, but it could mean something very different to somebody else in a different company. What are the features that make up a web application firewall that are important to your organization, right? If you're a heavy .NET shop, does it have the ability to work with .NET very well? Has it the ability to filter on .NET-specific vulnerabilities? And if somebody else is a Java shop, they may have a very different focus of what are the features that have to be there. So when you start to use this Moscow prioritization and you make a simple spreadsheet that says, here's the 10 features that are must-haves. And if you do not have them, we will not pick your product, right? And then you go through and you say the should-haves and could-haves and don't care or, or will not have. That allows you to, as a group, select a product that best meets your organization's needs. And sometimes we do this through something that is known as a pew matrix. G-Mark, can you talk a little bit about what a pew matrix is? What we're looking at then is if we're trying to figure out how are we going to define what it is that we're looking for, then we can organize it in a way where we'll say, what do we look at in terms of different criteria? What do we look at in terms of how important they are and base it across the alternatives? And what I'm able to do then is come up with a scoring system that allows me to go ahead and say, hey, this looks like something I even want to continue looking at. I've got some critical requirements. If I've got a must have and I run into something that I cannot go ahead and pass that, it's like, wait, it's missing what I need. For example, let me kind of quick walk over here to a real world example that people might relate and we'll come back here. If I think, for example, of going ahead and wanting to buy a house. All right. So what happens is we'll go out there and say, well, what do we need? I need, for example, to have so many bedrooms because we've got the kids. We need to have so many bathrooms. Maybe we need a backyard. Maybe we need to have a fireplace, two-car garage, good schools in the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. What we do then is we establish these criteria that we care about. We then determine which of those criteria are worth the most. We can score them to say, hey, 
I absolutely have to have, for example, at least three bedrooms because we got the kids. There may be a home that scores perfectly on every other criteria. It's exactly where they want. It's across the street from a school that's the best in the country and the taxes are a dollar a year, but it's a studio apartment. And I can't do that. Now what we're thinking about is as I have established my criteria, I can then go down alternative one, alternative two, alternative three, and figure out which one works out best for me. If it turns out that my total score when I get to the bottom is higher, I can use a plus sign that says, hey, it's better than my baseline. Great. If it's worse than the baseline, it's got kind of a negative. If it's the same as the baseline, I could just kind of write either an S or kind of a zero or whatever. And then I just add up kind of my net score. Based upon that, I can rank order them. And from that point, I could say, hey, is there enough here worth looking at? Do I even get in the car and drive over to look at that house? Do I even go ahead and engage with that vendor and ask to see a demonstration of their product? Or do we say, it's not worth our time? Because if it's not worth our time, why spend it looking at products or tools that can't meet the needs we have? Exactly. Exactly. So that is the second way. A third way we're seeing is what I like to call predictive analysis. How can we see how products are trending in the market to identify where the rest of the adoption is going and who the leaders are? And, and there's a couple of, of simple ways you can do this. And, and the simplest way that I know is you can just go to Google Trends. And Google Trends is a popular website. And you can just search, you know, different things. And, and it'll show how much the frequency of that word is in Google uh, searches, right? So you could search programming languages and see like R versus Python and see which ones are trending uh, more popular. And maybe that's where you want to spend time building out your data science languages and, and expertise. Another example of this might be uh, database engines, and it's db-engines. And this one here will actually show the popularity of websites. So if you're saying, hey, we really need to have a good website that allows for search indexing, right? We're trying to figure out this. You can go in there and f view the popularity of these sites. Or you might look at other things of where data is being asked and, and questions like Stack Overflow. What are most developers talking about? Because if most developers are talking about something, that means there's a lot of support and a lot of market engagement in, in this tool. And that can be a really good one because there might be a lot of free plugins or enhancements or tutorials that will save your team time. Yeah. And when you told me about this, it's like, wow, that's actually was a brilliant idea that I, I love it because when you think about it, we may be wedded to a tool because we absolutely love it. Man, this is great. This is awesome. I'm really comfortable with it. And if you were to go out and look and see what else is going on, it's all crickets. Nobody else is using it. Your product has been left to die because there's no updates coming, because vendors have moved on to something else. Customers have moved on to other technologies. And so by understanding where the noise is, where the chatter is, where the intensity of interest is out there in the market, we're better able to determine, hey, am I on a wave that's going to increase in terms of support? 
Am I likely to find more and more availability of features and capabilities and things such as that? Or am I looking at a project, a program, a tool that's going toward the obsolete pile? And uh, I just imagine that is for those of us who really, really, really loved Windows XP, and that was me, can't use it anymore. I'm sorry, it's been out of support since April of 2014. And there's no way, as much as you love it, that you could justify to anybody having business or client data on an XP box. In the same way, when we look at some of the tool sets that are out there, how are we going to justify utilizing something that's heading toward obsoleteness? And one great example of this is open source software. Now, open source software may be built by one person, 10 people, or a whole company behind it. And so you really want to understand what the continuity of this project is if you're going to write a significant part of your code base for your public-facing web applications around these tools. And one of the things you can do is you can go to a a website called openhub.net. And here you can put in a variety of different open source software projects and compare them. And it'll show you popular things like the number of contributors, how many times people wrote new code over the past 12 months, and what are the statistics, like how many files are being modified. And what this allows you to know is the maturity of a program or a project. You know, newer projects are gonna have a lot more updates than older ones, but how many contributors, right? If there's only one or two contributors, and it's starting to really slow down, and the last update was over four years ago, that's basically not supported, right? That means no security patches, even if there's vulnerabilities in the product, versus imagine another one where there's 500 developers who are active and committing code, you know, just last week. Well, that's a really good sign. This is something you're going to get good support and patches going forward. And I think what you brought up is an excellent point, is that we could be myopic and only look at features. Or we could say, well, let me do features and benefits. But as you point out, a responsibility of a good security leader is to also think of the maintainability and the viability of the solution set that we recommend for our enterprise. And if we determine that something is essentially dying on the vine, I don't want to be the last person to have to turn the lights out. It's kind of like the old model of when we moved away from the mainframe to distributed computing and client server. And anybody who remained on the mainframe would have to split the cost of keeping the mainframe going. And eventually, if you were the last department using the mainframe, you had to pay for the whole thing. Well, we don't want to end up, if you will, paying for the whole thing. In this case, we're not talking so much about the money, but your payment is going to be in the form of inadequate protection or capabilities due to the lack of updates of the tool. Another approach to selecting a tool is a methodology I like to call problem framing. And it has a couple of key steps in there. The first is let's identify the problem and state what we need to solve. Let's identify the intended objective, which is how do we identify the goals the organization is trying to get to so that we can agree to get there. Let's look at a couple of approaches of solutions. We have the status quo solution, which may be what we have today and no changes. Then there's a couple of other implied solutions, right? Your boss says, I want you to pick this product. And you know there's two or three other vendors in the space that you could check out. Next, they have this idea called the gap. What is the difference between where you are 
today with the status quo and where you're trying to get to on your intended objective, right? So if I need to run a marathon and I can only run five miles, you know, it's the difference between a five miles and a completed marathon, right? That's, that's the gap. And then there's the idea of a trap. And the trap is, hey, if I could wave a magic wand today and implement this solution, how might I still get it wrong? I build the, the product that the customer wants, and he's still not happy, right? And then last but not least, what are other alternatives of things where we can you know, combine a couple of these approaches to get to one better approach? Mm-hmm. And so let me put this problem framing example together and, and give out one holistic solution. Let's say our organization is looking for helping people be happier and healthier within the company, right? We're really worried about employee happiness. And so they come with this example that says, we're going to give Fitbits to everyone in the company. Now, you as a cyber person, knowing that Fitbits have security implications when you're connecting Bluetooth and they're going to try to plug those into their phones and their laptops and maybe corporate devices, you start to say, okay, let's, let's take through this problem framing example. Well, what is the problem? The problem that the organization is facing might be employee retention. And as we look at that, they can select an objective, which might be overall employee satisfaction or happiness. We may create an objective that says we want our next employee engagement surveys to have a score of 90%. And this is something we can strive to, which should correlate to fixing the problem statement. Yeah, I can see a couple other things. So intended objective would be, of course, to probably encourage health and wellness, which is going to drive down my insurance costs and premiums potentially as an employer. Here I am putting on my MBA hat and and thinking like a business owner here, as well as being able to reduce attrition. And so now if I can say, hey, the problem is, is that I have people that feel disconnected from the organization and they're not feeling a sense of teamwork and identity. My objective is create that identity get people to do things in terms of more physical activity that could be done as teams and groups. It's going to create increased morale. It's going to reduce attrition and have, if you will, a secondary benefit of potentially reducing my costs for the organization where maybe I say, Hey, you know what? The money I spent on Fitbits, I saved and reduced insurance premiums because I have a healthier population. And that's a, that's a great example here. So the intended objective here is healthier employees. And we're going to measure that right? Or we're going to measure employee retention within our organization. So now if we go with the status quo and the status quo is, hey, nobody has any Fitbit devices and and here's our monthly metrics for overall employee satisfaction, we can use that. What's the implied solution? Getting a Fitbit will fix the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And what's the gap, right? Well, the gap is where we are today and where we want to get to. So do you have a measure of what success looks like, right? Do you think that 80% employee retention is the right number? Is it 90%? And, and if you're at 70 today, that's where you want to measure to say, will this be effective? Now let's look at the trap, right? Let's say we buy every single person a Fitbit within the company. Great. Who doesn't like a Fitbit? All right. What if it sits on everybody's desk and nobody uses it? 
Did mm-hmm. that really help with the overall retention and happiness? Or did we just sunk a, a bunch of money and open up Bluetooth on all of our devices and create a new risk? Okay. So what might be some other alternatives we could do? Well, instead of giving Fitbits to everybody, what if we just gave three hours of exercise time so employees could go for a run? Employees could use the gym. Employees could do yoga or mindful meditation, right? Does this present any of the Bluetooth risks? No, it doesn't. Could we measure this and see if employees have the same level of retention and and do these things? Perhaps. So now you can take that example of of yoga or or you know going for a run and adding hours to people's time to see if that comes through a better scenario or are people just using this as a way to go golf for three hours and not do anything you know it, it could be good it could be bad Come bag you know i won't ride the cart <laughs> yeah so so ross what you've, you've laid out then is kind of a problem framing approach that instead of just saying hey i got a great idea allows us to have a more structured mechanism for thinking through that idea. What problem do you intend to solve? That's a really good question to start up front. Are you saying, okay, I'm worried about retention. I'm worried about happiness of my employee. I'm worried about the cost of my insurance rates. I'm worried about productivity. I mean, all those things may end up being as benefits on the back end, but typically we enter into one of these decisions based upon some sort of initial thought or idea. And then based upon that, specify our objective. What's our end state? If I know my status quo, if I know what happens, if I do nothing, I could probably expect that if you don't change anything, you're not going to experience much delta. Can you live with the status quo? Now, if the status quo is fine, then you might say, well, is it really worth trying to go after something else? And the answer could be yes, because although we might be okay today, we're not reflecting the level of growth that our shareholders require. I'm not allowing my IT security environment to expand to the new threats that might be coming to us. Yeah, there's always an opportunity cost with your resources. So you have to look at that. Great, great point. And so now if I have an objective and I know my status quo and we have some suggested solution, I can do a gap analysis. A gap analysis simply says, where am I now? Where do I want to go? And typically, if you, the better you can define that gap, the better the input is to create what we would call a roadmap. One way to say, to get from here to there, because I've already established a source, I've established a destination. By doing the gap analysis, I know what, the path, you know what are the obstacles there. Now I come up with the best path through it. Just like I'm trying to go ahead and, and map out a way across a hill or a valley or, or a field or something. And then let's go forward. The trap that you mentioned, though, is a really important one because it's one that is often overlooked. We get all starry-eyed. We think that our ideas are brilliant. And we forget about the fact that downside. This is where brainstorming comes in, being allowing other people to provide you with potentially critical feedback, but feedback that you don't get emotional about. They might point out something to say, you know what? That was a really bad idea. In conclusion, when someone has shown you something that you missed. So keeping an open lines of communication, being able to share ideas with other members of your team becomes important and doing that in a trust environment so that you don't end up with kind of the one person version of groupthink. It's just me think, and then you end up with an issue. 
And remember, the purpose of the trap isn't just to shoot everybody's ideas down and make them feel terrible. It's to strengthen the ideas, right? right? Together, we work together to say, here's how your idea could actually go bad. Let's put a couple safeguards in here to overcome these potential hurdles. And now your idea is a really good one. Love it. And then, of course, consider alternatives that say, okay, we've come up with one idea. What are the others? And in a way, once you have some of those alternatives, we can go back to what we talked previously about going ahead and doing a Pew matrix and the like. Let's compare these alternatives and see how they score out. So let me offer then, Ross, if I may, a fifth way for us to go through and do this. And that would be something called the Analytical Hierarchy Process, or AHP. Now, I learned this back in B school in my residency. And I didn't went to business school. I was in what they call an executive MBA. I think that's a polite term for old because I was in my 30s. And what it meant was is that you had a residency and then we took our classes every other Friday, every other Saturday over a period of a couple of years and, and got the degree and learned a lot. But with the AHP was introduced to us straight up at the beginning of the program as a way to look at a decision and decompose it into its core elements and in addition, could be used as a way to remove political agendas and personal biases out of a decision. That sounds like a useful skill to have. And so how does the AHP work? It's a hierarchy process in that initially I will set forth some particular goal. Let's say I need to go ahead and put in a web app firewall. And so I go to my staff. I've got five people working for me and everybody has their favorite brand. I want brand X. I want brand Y. I want brand... And you'll always end up with a five-way tie. Well, how do I go ahead and come up with a better way to come up with an answer than who shouts the loudest? As the analytical hierarchy process would say, I'm going to start out with a hierarchy. My first one at 100% is select the web app firewall. Select a solution. And then I'm going to come up with major sub-elements or criteria for that. How about performance? How about cost? How about support? What does this thing do? What does it cost? And how am I going to be able to maintain it? Those seem like three decent major categories. And so what you have is three inputs, which if they score equally would be one third, one third, one third. And so I go to my boss and I say, hey, boss, which do we care more about, capabilities or cost? And he says, um, about the same. Sir, do you have trouble making decisions? Oh, uh, well, yes and no. Anyway, joke aside, okay, so capabilities and cost are about the same. How about support? How about our ability to support it? Well, cost is twice as expensive or important as support. I really care about cost. Okay, well, I can balance that equation. If capabilities and cost are the same, and each is twice the value of a support and it has to add up to 100%, that's 40, 40, 20, isn't it? And now I'm starting to build a score sheet. And what I'll do is I can go down another level. And so, for example, under capabilities, I can say, how well does it support these types of tools I'm using for web app development? And how well does it work in this particular environment? For cost, I could say, what does it cost in year one and what does it cost in the out years? And then for support, I can take a look at things such as what's the speed for the contract to be able to give us help, et cetera. And each of those sub criteria or criterion, I guess, if there's one of them, is going to get a weighting as well. What comes out of that is essentially a scorecard. The scorecard is going to have inputs that are going to run along the bottom of that matrix to say, hey, 15% of my input is going to be support of this, 
10% is going to be that, 12% of this, 28%, etc. It's all going to add up to 100%. But what I've done is I've done a logical decomposition of my final choice into several sub-criteria. Now here's the trick. I go back to those same five employees and I say to the first person, Nancy, you're my expert in terms of being able to work with this particular environment. Go ahead and look at these five solutions and grade them from zero to 10, where 10 is absolutely perfect support and zero is terrible. Tom, you're going to be the person who's my best negotiator. So come out and tell me where you can get the best price. That's a 10. Then you can get the world's best deal. Zero means it's stupid expensive. I can't do anything about it. And so on. And what happens now is instead of looking at all the choices horizontally, where he said, here's my answer, here's my answer, we're shifting at 90 degrees. We're making it kind of a vertical where one person is evaluating the same criteria across all the solutions, which means if they're a tough grader, they're all graded tough. And they're all easy grader. In that criterion, they're all graded easily. I then go ahead and multiply each of the scores by their respective weights, add them all up, and I get a total from 0 to 10. They may have a result to say, this one scores 6.2, this one's 6.9, that's 8.5, this one's etc. And then it's a lot easier to pick a winner. Now, what happens if you get two that are really close to the top? Statistically, that might be insignificant, but allows you to perhaps disqualify the other solutions and then focus on that. We've removed the political agendas, we removed the bias, and we've basically turned our decision-making process into, for lack of a better term, a weighted scorecard, which then allows us to be more objective. Great. That's an excellent example. So we're coming up on time. So let's just do a quick recap of what we talked about today. We talked about using things like market research tools, such as the Gartner Magic Quadrant or the Forrester Wave to get an overall view of how the marketplace looks. We talked about using con comparison tools, which allow us to look at one vendor side by side to see a list of features of what we want in a tool in determining our must-haves, should-haves, could-haves, or will-not-haves in this Moscow prioritization. And then you can actually document this in a Pew matrix, P-U-G-H, Pew matrix. Next, we talked about predictive analysis, which is how can we identify trends in the marketplace? These could be Google trends. These could be trends from developer uh, conversations. These could be open source trends as we look at commits within the software uh, in GitHub. We also talked about problem framing. How can we walk through an example deployment to figure out what are some of the gaps, what are some of the traps, and how can we strengthen this decision through our consensus and, and opinions? And last but not least, we talked about the analytical hierarchy process, which allows us to take a complex decision where everyone is split identify key attributes of what is most important and put a prioritized weighting around those. And as we do that, we've created a way where we can have subject matter experts focus on individual criterion to really get the best product for the organization. I think it's a great summary. And I think we've offered some ideas for everybody to help you be more effective in your role as a security leader to be able to use different tools and tactics and techniques to come up with the best choices for your organization going forward. So Ross, as always, it's a pleasure to, to work with you on building and delivering these podcasts. 
everybody out there, we hope you find these valuable. If you do, please ensure that you're following us and tell others about what we're doing here at the CISO Tradecraft. We're looking to be able to go ahead and expand our ability to add value to other people's careers and the like, and you can help with that as well. Exactly. And so if you haven't seen our page on LinkedIn, you can go search for CISO Tradecraft and follow, and there you'll get a chance to subscribe to any of our latest news. So take a look at that. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. And once again, thank you for listening. We love our followers, our subscribers. Do anything you can to share. We'd love to have this message go to more people. And once again, practice your CISO Tradecraft. Take care, everyone.